chapter 15, under the heading, The Resurrection of Christ. We're reading from verse 1 to 34. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be back sharing with you again on this uh, glorious Easter morning, both weather-wise, but also with the realisation that we have a risen Saviour. And I want to um, point out this morning, I think, that you can have a very simple faith in understanding what it is to belong to Christ. But the longer that you belong to Christ, the richer that should be. And I hope this morning, as we think about how Paul explains to us this resurrection, that it will enhance your faith and and help you to grow in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that our Lord Jesus has risen. What a glorious hope that gives to us. What an important truth for us that Jesus has risen and that we too will rise. Thank you for that glorious truth and help us as we think about this word from your scriptures this morning. May your spirit enlighten our hearts and minds and and burn your word deep into us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whilst our um, focus this morning is on the resurrection, I did... um, suggest we read Psalm 22 to begin with because that reminds us of the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah that would suffer and die on our behalf. And we talked about that on Friday quite extensively, thinking about how God placed on Jesus, this was God's purpose, God placed on Jesus and punished Jesus for our sin. He placed our sin on him and punished him so that we might be free, so that we might know a new life. And so the scriptures talk about Jesus being sin for us, and it talks about how the Father turned his face away because the Father cannot look at sin. Can you imagine what it must have been like for God the Son to be separated from his eternal Father? The mind boggles when I try to think about it because we have a triune God, a one God, and yet here's this idea of separation, of the impact of sin because God has to turn his face away from sin. And so he deals with it by punishing Jesus and then, of course, we have the glorious resurrection of Jesus. It's clearly portrayed in the scripture, that Jesus died and rose again, and that's the central focus of the Bible. The Old Testament looking forward to that event, the New Testament looking back to that event and explaining and helping us to understand what Jesus was doing. And so this morning I want you to think about what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for you? What does it mean for you? But to do that, we need to think about what happened. What's the event all about? Well, 
maybe you want to maybe you're one of those people who's um, been strongly influenced by our scientific age by thinking of the world it, it, that's all there is what we can see and um, we're sophisticated aren't we I mean you, you never see resurrection so how could you possibly believe in that we're too we're too sophisticated too scientific to believe in the resurrection. Well, if you think that's a new thought, think again, because that's been a problem in the even in the church right from its early days. It's not new. You see, resurrection doesn't add up in our human thinking. And as we see in, in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, it's a problem that's in the church right back then. There were these people who were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. We'll find that in the church today, don't we? Even in today. Um, I think um, a brother uh, prayed for the Anglican church in England uh, and to do with the, re the uh, rejection of um, the gender issues but it's even more deep-seated in terms of there is the, the rejection of the resurrection of Jesus. And in the Episcopal Church in America, there was a prominent bishop. I don't know whether he's still alive, but back in the uh, 90s, he was very prominent. Um, I think he came to Australia. Bishop Sprong, you might have heard of him, denying the resurrection, yet saying he's a Christian. It doesn't make sense, but it's there. The problem is in the church. We've even had a heresy trial within the Presbyterian Church in New South Wales in my time. I can't remember. I didn't look up the details, and I don't remember all the details, but it did involve that sort of thing, the denial of, of the resurrection. There was a minister in the church, a Scottish minister, and um, he... Uh, I tailed it back to Scotland, I understand. So there are many in the church who will dismiss the idea. And subtly that creeps in is the idea that, oh, well, when we die, we go to heaven. Yes, but there's not the idea of a bodily resurrection. There's not the idea of a new creation that separates out heaven from earth so far away that you know, it's not real, whereas the Bible picture is God's present with his creation, his heaven. It, it's closely aligned, and the new age, the heavenly age, is already broken into this world with Jesus. Now, Jesus warned us that there would be false teachers, Remember he said there would be false teachers come and also the apostles in their letters. So Paul had to deal with this in the Corinthian church. No resurrection. In lots of ways I'm really glad that they had that problem back then because now we've got Paul explaining to us what the significance of the resurrection is in a way that um, we don't see in the gospel. So that's really helpful to us. So let me just think about some of the things that we learn from Paul about this heresy. 
first and foremost, we understand that the resurrection of Jesus, bodily resurrection, when I'm using that term of resurrection, not just some uh, phantom idea of, of a spirit raised and being alive. No, a bodily resurrection is central to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he starts off this chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. He's talking about this is the message that you've heard and, and I'm keeping telling you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. These are people who have believed what Paul has preached and they've take hold, held fast to that, but things have gone astray, haven't they? By this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And so then he goes on, the next couple of verses, it's like a little creed that became well established in the life of the early church. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There's a gospel. You can't separate out the resurrection from Jesus' death on your behalf, on my behalf. The resurrection is central to the gospel. Then he goes on to explain this is a historical fact. It's not just some idea that somebody's conjured up. This has happened in history. We've actually recognised that by having uh, the before Christ and after Christ. Yay. Well, I've forgotten the Latin, what the Latin stands for. Um, added on, uh, anyway, we'll, we won't go down there. But you see, that's the, the historical fact. It's infected our history. People are trying to deny that now and saying before the common era and so on. But nevertheless, you can't get past. What caused the common era? Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's a historical fact. And how do we know it's a historical fact? Well, Paul has uh, some reasons here. He says, um, and he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, if you, if you use the name that uh, Jesus gave to him, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. You know, some have argued that, that um, you know, the resurrection that the, that the disciples heard, the apostles saw, was just a sort of a vision they had or something that happened in their mind. But what Paul is saying is there are 500 people who saw Jesus at the same time. Nobody, you never hear of a, a mass idea of everybody having the same vision at the same time. It's impossible. It doesn't work that way. No, this is a historical event. And he wants you and me to know that. Here are people, because here are people that could have testified that what Paul was writing was a load of bunk. They could have, and they would have. If it hadn't, if these people had not seen Jesus risen, and Paul said they did, he said, you're a liar. But no, he appeared to the 
then, then he appeared to James, and that's probably Jesus' own brother because by the time Paul wrote, James the apostle was, was um, already uh, martyred. And then to all the apostles, and at last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So living encounters with the living Lord Jesus Christ recorded in history. And there are actually external things outside the Bible, that the evidence that points to the resurrection of Jesus as well. And you can explore those, uh, but I haven't got time to look into that. And then ultimately, of course, you see the lives that have changed. Where were those disciples at Jesus' arrest? They fled. Where were they after the death of Jesus? They were locked in a room. They were afraid that they too would end up in the same way. But where are they after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit? They're boldly out there preaching Jesus. That comes from an absolute conviction of a risen Christ. It doesn't come from an idea that somebody's conjured up. The Corinthian church obviously had a number of problems. It's not the only problem that Paul deals with in this letter. But the no resurrection party was, was one of the strong ones. And Paul counters the teaching by demonstrating the centrality of the resurrection to the gospel when we turn to verse 12. But if we preach that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Do you understand that? If Christ has not risen from the dead bodily, you might as well give up. It's nothing. Why come to church? Why listen to the scriptures? Why do anything like that? Because it's totally useless. That's Paul's argument. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And Paul's saying, if we're not raised from the dead, neither was Christ raised from the dead. But he is raised. That's his point. He is raised, so too will be. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You still stand guilty before God. Because what you see is that the resurrection actually tells us and shows us that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross was acceptable to God that God has forgiven us because Jesus took our sin. That's the amazing thing. And so then 
those who have fallen, it goes on in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Can you imagine living in China as a Christian or North Korea as a Christian or in the Middle East as a Christian? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then you're in prison for your faith. What's the point? Horrible. If your faith is not real, if it's got no purpose, and that's what Paul is saying here, we'd be pitied. Life's not, it, it, it's stupid to believe in Christ if there's no resurrection, if Jesus was not raised from the dead. And so he actually um, goes on in, in verse 32 later on and says, uh, let's eat and drink and be merry and for tomorrow we die. What's the modern view of life? What are we saying? Death is the end, isn't it? You go out there and talk to people. Mind you, I don't think everyone really believes that, but that's what they say. Death's the end. But if you live like that, what's going to hold you back? What's going to restrain you? If there's no facing God in judgment, why not murder the people you hate? Why not abuse people just because you'll get fun out of it? And that's certainly how some people live. But the resurrection changes our perspective on life. The resurrection brings clarity about what life is all about. And Paul explains that in verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What's God's purpose? God has created the world. Where did the problem and evil of, and uh, the difficulties of our world come from? It comes from sin. It's not how God created it. And death itself is not there from God's purposes. That's the result of sin. So Paul explains why we face death. We face death because of sin, because Adam died and we were in Adam, but we also sinned. So we're both guilty from our birth, but we're guilty from our behaviour. And death has become part of our experience. Of course, that's inference from that is that we're not created for death. The work of Christ is a restoring work, destroying death itself. When um, I've got the wrong verse, 22. Um, so in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The end, the, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. 
and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we've got this time frame where Jesus is reigning. Hey, what's all the problems with that? Well, his, what did he say to us in John's Gospel? He's going to prepare a place. And that not only is talking about heaven, that's actually talking about the restoration of his creation. This is an ongoing process. Every time he brings somebody to faith and renews that person, gives them new life, that is part of the restoring. It's part of the defeat of the kingdom of Satan, the powers and authorities that he talks about here that are defeated. And so um, the last enemy is the enemy of death. We face death, all of us, unless Jesus returns before. It's going to happen. How do we face it? We face it with hope, if we believe, because of the resurrection of Jesus. And that death will be defeated as central to that faith. There will be no more death, no more crying or tears or pain or suffering because Jesus rose from the dead and is the first fruits, the first part of what God is doing. There's more to come, but right now we're experiencing that work of Jesus gathering together a people for himself and bringing Satan's kingdom to naught. Now, Paul's final argument is that the Corinthian church was being illogical. Down in verse 29. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those who are baptized, what will those do who are baptized from the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, Paul's not arguing for baptizing people uh, from the dead who are dead, you know, and that's apparently what was happening in the church. There were people who died who maybe family members who were not believers and so people were saying, oh, well, I can be baptised on behalf of that person. And, of course, the Mormons do the same thing today. They, They do that very thing. But that's not what Paul is arguing about. He's saying you're illogical. On the one hand, you're saying there's no resurrection. On the other, you're baptising people who are dead. Why? Stupid, not going to help them. And then he says the other part of that final argument is that if it wasn't for the resurrection, I wouldn't do what I'm doing. He said, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, I might as well eat, drink, and and, uh, for tomorrow we die. I wouldn't do this, he said. No, No point in it. But the resurrection gives me meaning, gives me point, gives me hope. So that's Paul's argument as to why we need to hold fast to the resurrection. And so for us personally today, the resurrection is the basis of our hope 
our eternal hope. And I don't mean, I hope so. I, I, I hope um, that uh, I'll win the lottery. If, uh, not that I go into the lottery, but that, that's the idea. I hope it. I don't think I will, you know. That's, or I hope I'll get home safe. We don't know those things. But what hope is, how hope is used in the Bible is this is certain. We don't see it yet, but it is certain. That's our hope. And, and the resurrection gives us meaning for our lives. There's no meaning for life without the resurrection. The resurrection, as I said earlier, shows that Jesus' death on our behalf, his sacrifice as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, was accepted by God. If we were to take down the, the idea, if we cease to exist in death, life has no meaning. And that's led many people to give up to suicide because there is no meaning. Relationships are pointless. What's the point of this? When you stand at your loved one's graveside or at the crematorium, the resurrection makes sense. It gives meaning. Let me give you a personal testimony on that one. I stood beside my first wife's grave and it hit me. The resurrection is the only thing that makes sense of my 41 years of marriage. The resurrection is the only thing that... that gives purpose to our life together, our children, all of the things that, that God has given to us. It's a resurrection. It's central. It's central to who we are and what God has for us. Resurrection provides confirmation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Let us pray. Father, you are a gracious God in sending your own son that he would bear the penalty of our sin, that he would be that perfect sacrifice. Oh, but Father, how we thank you that Jesus was raised to life, that you accepted his sacrifice, that we have purpose and hope that it doesn't just belong in this world that we experience now, but will be part and parcel of eternity. For we thank you that life just doesn't end with death, but we will stand in your presence, either in judgment or in salvation. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.